on? Yes? Thumbs up from Bruce. Good. All right. Um, thanks for having me, guys. It's nice to be here. Um, question for all of you. Who knows this book? If you can't see it, it's 1984 by George Orwell. It's a classic. You all should have studied it in school. It's a good book. Anyway, does anyone know the opening nine of 1984 by George Orwell? Oh my gosh, people do know the first line. That was meant to be like a big element of surprise factor, but that's okay. You all know it. I'm going to read it anyway. <clears throat> the opening line of George Orwell's 1984 reads, It was a bright, cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. Full stop. Now, that is quite bizarre, right? It's quite odd. What starts as a very candid observation of the weather, of the coldness of the day, ends in this perplexing, impossible observation that it was 13 o'clock. Now, although that might seem curious and baffling and impossible, if you're familiar with the story, which I think a lot of you are, you'll know that that line, that opening sentence, is actually the perfect introduction to a story that is all about this version of truth, a story that's all about the control of knowledge. The way that it just casually mentions the impossible hour of the day in the exact same manner that it just casually comments on the weather, it actually prepares the reader for the journey that they're about to embark on and prepares them for what they're about to read. And that's the great power of an introduction, to prepare and familiarise your readers for what is going to lie ahead. And we've all been there, and some of us still are there, having to curate these introductions that at the very least introduce what you're going to talk about, but perhaps even more than that, actually heighten interest and prepare the way for what's to come. Now, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote a very sizable chunk of the New Testament, he was in the habit of writing introductions uh, to his letters to his epistles, which make up a lot of the New Testament. Now, for all the letters that he would send across to churches throughout the growing Christian world in the first century, he would begin them with an introduction. And these intros, these openings, they'd often contain a greeting, a blessing, and quite often there would be some like nugget-sized pieces of theology that would actually prepare the way for what was to come in the remainder of that letter. And so that is what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, is Paul's introductions. It's the series we're in at the moment. So it means tonight we're looking at the intro to Titus, which we just had read out to us by a vet. And then next week we have off. The week after, um, Brandon's going to take us through the introduction to Romans. Um, so uh, that's what we're going to be doing. So why don't I just start us off by um, praying and submitting this time together uh, to our Lord Father. Our Lord... Uh, as we uh, meet you in uh, your word tonight, may you meet us there, Lord. May you meet us to challenge us, convict us, encourage us, search us. And may we leave tonight even deeper in love with you. May we leave tonight uh, with a greater urge to share your gospel with those that you have put in our life. And Lord, we submit this time to you tonight and may you be glorified. And in this we pray, amen. All right, so, done with that. Um, we're looking at Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through to 3, which, as I said, is the intro to the book. Now, Titus, it was a letter written by Paul for a man, funnily enough, called Titus. 
and he was this guy, he was a gospel worker, who was heading up um, ministry on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean in the first century. Very young church there um, that Paul had uh, planted earlier, but he's a gospel worker on this island. Now, this letter that Paul's written, it wasn't just intended for Titus, but it was intended for all the ears of the Christians there in that young and growing church. Now, in order to best understand our passage tonight, best understand this introduction and the letter as a whole, uh, it's important that we're familiar with this church that Paul is writing to. We want to know what the church in Crete was like, what their struggles and challenges were, how they had received the gospel, those kinds of things. And by becoming aware of the kind of people they are, um, it'll help us understand why Paul wrote this letter and why he introduced it in the way he did. So, let me paint a scenario for you. Okay? So, the service tonight ends. And I'm stoked, I'm relieved, my sermon's over, I think it went okay. And so, I decide that I might go uh, to Bangor Tav after to celebrate and maybe blow off some steam. Um, and the night comes to an end, the tab's starting to close, and I realise I'm not really in a state to drive, and so I have to get someone to drive me home, and I have to leave my car at the tab. Dodgy. Meanwhile, during that night, Punchy was talking to Tom Stanton, who mentioned that he didn't want to come to the weekend away because he really couldn't be bothered. Now, Punchy's really disappointed, and he's so disappointed that he starts getting angry, he gets so angry that he reckons he should blackmail Tom. And so... He threatens to cancel R87 if he doesn't come from Menai's program in order to get Tom the weekend away, just to boost numbers. And then later in the week, Bruce starts planning a church fundraiser so his pay can increase. Margaret deletes the Bible app off her phone because she can't fit all her ABBA music on it. And Braden calls in sick for youth because it's a football game he'd rather watch. Now, you might hear all that and think, wow, that staff team is a train wreck. That's quite shambolic. What a mess. And yes, that is quite shambolic, but in reality, that would just be a reflection of the broken world around us. This sinful world, it promotes things like selfishness, it promotes drunkenness, it celebrates cutting corners and self-pride, it loves all those things. And if our staff team sought to be like the world, then they very likely could end up looking like that scenario painted, but the consequences would be very real. So back to the scenario... As the people of Menai Anglican, you guys are being led by these people who exhibit these kinds of selfishness and pride and jealousy and anger, you guys too start becoming more like the world. The congregation, they start seeing a lot of these things as permissible, as okay, as acceptable, because that's how they're being led. And so the uni students here, instead of taking the light of Jesus Christ into their campuses, they just get drunk like everyone else at the, re- the end of a cohort. Sorry, at the, like the rest of their cohort at the end of a long day. And the husbands and fathers here, they start abusing their authority and start taking joy in the dominance they can feel and getting angry. And the mothers here, rather than helping and supporting and praying each other as they seek to raise Christian children, they just fester in their jealousy of one another. And so, just like the staff team, they start looking more and more like the world that we're told to be light in. And that that is the crisis that the church in Crete is facing. The people of Crete, the population there, they were well known, they were notorious for their foul behaviour. It was a corrupt and offensive place where sinful practice was just the norm. It was just acceptable. 
And so the very young church there, they needed Christian leaders who weren't like the world around them. They needed Christian leaders that were blameless in their pursuit of Christ so that the Christians being led in this young church, they could take the light of Christ to whatever unique situation that God had placed them in, whether that was servanthood, whether that was motherhood, whether that was being of the elderly age, whatever it was. And so knowing that the crisis that Paul is addressing in this letter, we can better understand his introduction and how he used it to prepare the way for this encouragement his encouragement to a church that needs to look different from the world around them. And I think that, that isn't a message, that's an encouragement that we all need to hear today. A message we all need to be reminded of 2,000 years later. Because being different from the world, being different from this sinful world that we're told to be light in, that's a calling we have as God's people. That is something we're called to. We're called to be light through the way we live, and we're told to be light through our proclamation of Jesus' name and through our sharing of the gospel. And if you're anything like me, it's something we fail at. Time and time again, it's something we fail at. And some days there are times when you can just feel the attitudes and the values of the world just slowly seeping into your mind, into your thoughts as you go about your day, and then they start presenting themselves in your actions. But praise God that he has used Paul centuries ago, 2,000 years ago, to write this letter as his holy and eternal word so that we can still learn from it today and so that today we can be encouraged to live for him through what Paul wrote as God's word. So in this introduction we've had read, what does Paul do? Well, he does three things that we're going to look at. Firstly, he introduces his identity Secondly, he introduces the purpose for his ministry. And thirdly, uh, he introduces the basis for his ministry. And from those three things that we're going to look at, uh, we're going to see how and we're going to see why we can live differently from the world for the glory of God. So let's get into the word. So first up in verse 1, the very first thing that Paul does is he introduces himself. He introduces his identity. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And at first, gla- at first glance, that might just seem like an offhand introduction, just a casual drop of his title, but it really isn't. Paul has introduced himself as a servant, which is the lowest of the low on whichever social hierarchy you look at. Being a servant, introducing yourself as a servant... It, doesn't, it shouldn't attract listenership. It shouldn't attract an audience. It doesn't convey any sense of authority. It doesn't scream, hey, listen to me. In fact, it does the complete opposite. And yet, that's how Paul starts his letter, by calling himself a servant. And yes, uh, it is important to recognize who he's a servant to, which is actually the focus. He's a servant to God. And servanthood to God, it actually paints this beautiful picture of undivided loyalty of complete service. It's a beautiful picture of holistic and complete commitment to God. Those are the connotations that servanthood has. And Paul uses this to introduce himself. It's his primary identity. 
It's his complete identity. It's not just an aspect of who he is. It's not just a single facet. It's the entirety of his identity. He's completely devoted in service to God. And if maybe you're thinking, wow, servanthood, um, being a servant has these connotations of lowliness, of dirtiness, of unimportance to it. Well, it's important to actually remember Philippians 2, um, which is one of my favorite passages in the Bible, which speaks of Jesus, although being in very nature God, making himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He became a servant for us when he became obedient to death. The very creator of the universe, the God who reigns over everything, sought to become a servant out of humility and love. And it's because of Christ's servanthood that Paul becomes a servant, completely undivided and loyal in his service to the God who died for him. So after introducing his identity, Paul then introduces the purpose for his ministry. So the reasons that he writes to this church in Crete. And that's at the back half of, the back half of verse 1, which says, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So, what is Paul's reason for his ministry? What is his purpose in writing to this church that is struggling to be different from the world around them? Well, there are two things in that verse. Firstly, to further the faith of those on crate that are elected, and secondly, to grow them in their knowledge of the truth which produces godliness. So, I know election can have... Sometimes we feel anxious about it because we can't completely understand it and how it works with our free will, and so we stress out and it's anxiety-inducing. But actually, I think it is used as an encouragement to us, and I think that's how it's being used to these people in Crete. He's reminding these people that are battling the sinful world around them that if they believe in Jesus as their king, if they have put their faith in him as their saviour, they have been chosen by an almighty God. They have been elected. Now, this is a cause for encouragement for these Christians because Paul's reminding them that they actually have been chosen to be different. God has already separated them from the darkness of the world so that they can be light. Now, it, in the Old Testament, when God elected Israel as his chosen people, he chose them out of the world so that they could be a light to the nations around them. They were given the task of being light to all the people around them. They were chosen to live out God's law and to obey him and live under his rule, to live differently from those around them so that the people around them, the nations around them, might encounter the one true God. And it's in Isaiah 42.6, which says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the nations. So just like Israel, they had been chosen out of the world and into righteousness in order to spread God's light there, here on earth, to the people around them. Paul is reminding these Christians that they too, they've been chosen. They too have been called to live differently. Paul's reminder of the Christians of Crete's election is there as an encouragement to their faith, which was 
the first purpose of his ministry. And in the back half of verse 1, the second purpose there is to grow them in the knowledge of truth, which leads to godliness. And it's in this reason that Paul says that he actually tells them how to live differently, how godliness produced. And it's the knowledge of truth. He doesn't say it's behavior modification. He doesn't say it's strict rule following and legalism. He doesn't say it's a strong self-will. He says it's the knowledge of truth. It is from the knowledge of truth that godliness springs forth and it's godliness that will distinguish them from the world around them. It is godliness that will cause them to live differently and to be light in the world. So in order for the Christians of Crete to live differently, in order for them to lead godly lives, Paul is encouraging them to draw near the truth, to grow in their knowledge of it. And that might sound pretty abstract, so it's important to clarify the truth that Paul's talking about. And the truth that he speaks of that produces godliness, that truth is the message of Jesus Christ, which is the gospel. It is the written word of God that speaks of the historical Jesus Christ, Son of God, his ministry on earth, and ultimately his death and resurrection. His death, that was the punishment we deserved for our sin and disobedience, and his resurrection, which defeated sin and death. So it is growing in the knowledge of the gospel. It's growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, his ministry, drawing back to the truth of his death and resurrection. It is from that that will spring forth godliness. That will cause Christians to live differently. Implementing just mere behavior modification will eventually fall because it hasn't reached the heart. Summoning up enough self-will to live differently will falter because it's drawing on our own strength. But retreating to the message of Jesus and growing in our knowledge of him, that will lead to godliness. And it's exactly like Jesus gives his own illustration for this. It's exactly like the picture Jesus presents in John 15 of the vine and the branches, when Jesus says he is the vine and we are the branches. In order for the branch to bear fruit, it has to be connected to the vine. It has to be connected to that life-giving source that enables it to produce fruit. In order to produce godliness, we have to be constantly connected to the vine. We have to be connected to Jesus, constantly retreating back to that source of life that will enable us to live differently. And that connection that's made when we meet Jesus in his word, when we meet the truth of the gospel in God's revelation of himself in the Bible. So Paul, he's introduced his identity as a servant. He then introduces the reason for his ministry, which was for the faith of the elect and for the knowledge of truth that leads to godliness. And then he introduces the basis for his ministry. So the basis on which he writes to the church in Crete and the basis on which he encourages them to live differently. And that is, as verses 2 and 3 say, the hope of eternal life which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. 
So there are two things there that I think form the basis for Paul's ministry. They're the hope of eternal life and the preaching of God's word. So the hope of eternal life here, as Paul depicts it, it's a strong hope. It is steadfast and it is sure. It has been promised by a perfect and innately good God who cannot lie, who cannot deceive. Therefore, it's encouragement for the people of Christ to take confidence in this promise as the basis for which they live differently. They can know that their faith and they can know that the truth that leads to godliness, that will lead them through to eternity. And what an incredible promise that we can take hope in as we seek to live differently from the world. And not only was it just promised by a God who cannot lie, but as it tells us there, it was promised before the beginning of time. Now, I remember in the last sermon series, in the Psalm series, when we were looking at Psalm 103, um, in verse 17, it says, From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. From everlasting to everlasting. It's just crazy and incomprehensible to think that God's love is from everlasting and to everlasting. It starts before infinity and it ends after infinity. It begins before the unbeginnable and it ends after the unendable. It's just, it's impossible to comprehend and we can't manage to because we're not God. But it's just so much greater than we can understand. That's God's love. It's greater than we can merely understand. And it's the same here as God's promise of eternal life. He says the promise for eternal life begins before the beginning of time. God promised eternal life before creation even existed. God always planned for salvation. He always planned to rescue sinners so they could be with him for eternity, before the beginning of time. We don't follow a God who had to conjure up salvation as a plan B, who had to quickly think of some ad hoc plan as a reaction to sin. God, a God who cannot lie, promised eternal life from before the beginning of time. It's crazy. And what assurance that is. What confidence as we pursue truth, as we seek to live as lights to those around us. It's important as well to recognize what Paul says, that, that the promise of eternity, it's brought to light through the preaching of the word. It's brought to light through preaching. It is through the preaching of good news of Jesus that the people of Crete have been able to inherit this promise of eternity. It is through Paul's declaration of Jesus' death and resurrection that this promise of eternity might become known to them and that they might accept it. See, the promise of eternity, it comes into the light when we share the gospel, when we declare who God is and when we declare what he has done. See, God has chosen to use his people to reveal the promise he has for those that follow him. And Paul, he says that he preaches by the authority entrusted to him by God. And Paul did have special given authority by God to plant and encourage churches, um, to write um, his holy and eternal word in the Bible, and to preach across the known world at that time. But we too, 
we also have been given authority by Jesus himself in the Great Commission in Matthew, Matthew 28. God gives all his followers the authority to make disciples of all nations, to take the good news. It's an authority we all share together. It's an authority we share with the people of Crete 2,000 years ago. With the authority we've been given, we need to declare the gospel to those God has put in our lives. Knowing that God works through our declaration of him to bring the promise of eternity into the light. So that wraps up Paul's intro to Titus. We've seen how he's used the introduction to introduce his identity as a servant, also to present the purpose of his ministry as for the faith of the elect and for the knowledge which leads to godliness, and also lay out the basis of his ministry as the promise of eternity and the preaching of the word. And we've been able to explore how this is such a fitting uh, introduction to the whole book of Titus, which encourages these people, these people of Crete, to lead godly lives wherever they are, whatever situation context they've been put in, so that they may be different from the world. And so what can we today, what can we learn and how can we apply this? Because it is so important that we are living differently to the world around us. It's so important that we take the grace that we've mercifully been given through Christ, we take that promise of eternity and we share it with the broken world we live in. We share it through the way we live and we share it through the way we proclaim Jesus, our Saviour. And this is something I struggle with and it's something I've been hugely convicted of uh, while preparing this. It's something I fail at often. And so I think... It's something that we can all take some time to seriously think, okay, how am I going with this? How can I be doing better? How can I be relying on God more in order to live differently, in order to share God's light with the world? So I'm going to focus on two things that I think we can take from this passage in order uh, to leave tonight um, being light uh, in the world we've been put in. So firstly dwelling in the truth that leads to godliness, and secondly, proclaiming Jesus. Because the passage, it made it clear that godliness, it doesn't come from us. It doesn't come out of our behaviour. It doesn't come out of our will. But godliness comes from knowledge of the truth. That means what we have to do, first and foremost in living differently is spending time in the Word because it's in the Word that we encounter truth. It's in the Word that we have the truth of the Gospel. The first thing we have to do is spend time in this, drawing back to the Gospel, growing in our knowledge of Jesus through his revelation in the Scripture. And from that, we'll pour forth godliness. I was talking to a close mate of mine on Sunday who was encouraging me. And he said, um, he said this. He said that uh, the more our head is in the word, the more our thoughts are of God, the easier it is to spot thoughts that shouldn't be there. The easier it is to recognize temptation. The more we dwell on the word, the more we meditate on it during our day to day, the easier it is to see when the values and attitudes of the world seep in. 
the easier it is to spot temptation and to pray against it. Whereas if our minds are burdened and weighed down by the ways of the world, temptation will just slip in and it will blend. Just blend in with the background. Why do we get so nervous about wearing white all the time? Because the purer the colour is of a piece of clothing, the easier it will be for dirt and muckiness to show up, right? When I was at school at Shire, our sports shirts were white. The shirts you wear when you're running around the dirt and chasing bulls were white. And so every time it got dirty, which was every time you wore it, the dirt would show up right away and you'd have to wash it. It's the same principle. That's why we're told in Colossians to keep our minds on the things above. If your mind and heart have been soaking in the word... When you're at work and colleagues start gossiping about someone who isn't in the room and their temptation arises to join in, you'll be able to spot that immediately and pray against it. If your mind and heart have been dwelling on the things above, when you see an advertisement with a woman in it, scantily clad, and the temptation arises to lust after her, You'll be, that temptation will be so out of place, you'll be able to spot it immediately and pray against it for God's strength. We need to continually be meeting Jesus in his word so that godliness will pour forth and we can live differently. Spending time in the word, it will armor us against temptation, it will armor us against the attitudes of the world. That's the first thing. Secondly, we need to be prepared to proclaim the name of Jesus and to preach the gospel. Paul, he's clear that the promise of eternal life has been brought into the light when the word is preached. That is, the good news of Jesus declared through our proclamation of him. God uses us to bring the good news of Jesus into the lives of people that need to hear it. And this is something I've been convicted of um, when I was preparing this. Um, And so something I've been praying a lot about for opportunities to do that. And God's been really faithful in his granting of those opportunities. But it's really important. The way we live differently, that of course is important, but it needs to be anchored, it needs to be grounded in the good news of Jesus that we are willing to share, that we are willing to give out. See, the way we live, it points to Jesus... But the people in our lives, they need to know who it's pointing at. They need to know what he's done for them. And that comes through our proclamation of Jesus' name. Trusting that the Spirit will work through that. It comes through our sharing of the gospel. So people at work, they might know that you won't get drunk at the staff function or whatever. But do they know why? That comes through the sharing of the good news. People at uni might know that you won't sleep around, but do they know why? That comes through our proclamation of Jesus. And I know that it can be hard and awkward and anxiety-inducing and tough. I know that, trust me. So we need to be completely reliant on our good God for strength. We need to be completely reliant on the God whose promise of eternity lasts before the beginning of time. Because we have the promise of eternity, promised since the beginning of time, are we willing to share that? Because we serve a king who became a servant for us. 
Are we willing to wholeheartedly serve that king? Because we have the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Are we willing to share that truth so that godliness might pour forth from others? Friends, let's leave tonight as people who dwell in the truth that leads to godliness so that we might live differently. And people that proclaim the name of Jesus so that people will know why we live differently. All right, pray with me. Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for those moments we come before your word. We try to comprehend how far, how wide your love is, and we can't because it's not possible. We thank you for that reminder tonight. May your love that lasts from everlasting to everlasting drive us to spend time in the knowledge of the truth, drive us to your word. And through that encounter with you, may you bring godliness out of us. May we be constantly drawing back to the gospel, soaking in the gospel, so that godliness will pour forth, so that we can resist temptation, so we can recognize it, so that we can live differently by your spirit, Lord. And the way we live may be anchored in the way we declare your name to those around us, Lord. We recognize, Lord, that nothing is by chance, that you have deliberately put people in all of our lives, people that need to hear your good news. May you be empowering us to do that by your spirit. May you be giving us courage to do that so that we might share uh, in the promise of eternity uh, together. Lord, in this we pray, amen.